So what is the greatest challenge to the church? Is it political instability? Is it threats to religious liberty? Is it the moral degradation of our culture and our society? Or is it the scandals involving some of its leaders? Well, according to Paul, it is understanding that the gospel, what the gospel is, and how it informs every single area of our lives. What is the gospel, and how does it inform our work, our play, our relationships, everything? And in fact, as we're going to see this morning, it, Paul shows that it informs the way leading and following take place in the church. The gospel, this gospel, um, Paul described it to Timothy in this way earlier in, in chapter 1, verse 15. And we heard that uh, earlier. Dr. Bradley shared that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. He also wrote later on, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all. And then he describes the gospel in all kinds of different ways throughout this letter. He calls it sound doctrine. He speaks of it as grace and mercy, the knowledge of the truth, the mystery of godliness, the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the teaching that accords with godliness. It is Paul said it is the good confession and it is the deposit that has been entrusted to you. It is this gospel that informs us how we then treat one another and how we, especially how we treat, um, in this passage, the elders in the church. It is because of God's mercy and grace in Christ Jesus that we can be his body, that we can be his church. Christ is the head of the church, yes, and he is the chief shepherd, but he is appointed elders to be his under-shepherds. He has elders, pastors. He calls his church then to show the fruit of the gospel in their support, in their encouragement, in their prayers of elders. And in this passage that we're going to look at today, Paul shows us four ways that the gospel informs our, our support or how we treat our elders. It's in our aid, our accountability, our appointment, and our appreciation, or another way of putting that would be how we serve and respect them. So, if you have your, your Bibles with you, what page are we on, Matt? 993. So, page 993 in the Bibles underneath the, the seats. If you will turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 5. We'll look at 1 Timothy 5 together, and we're going to begin looking at verse 17. Chapter, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. So follow with me as I read aloud. You can also follow with us on the words on the screen. He, Paul says this, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, 
rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also, good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this word to us, and I pray that you will grant us understanding of it. Help us to see what you want us to see. God, I pray that that my words will just be the means of, of sharing your word and speaking your word directly to our hearts this morning. And I pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen. So the gospel, first of all, it informs our aid of elders in the church. Our aid of elders in the church. Look, look back with me to verse 17. He says, let the elders... So who are these elders? Who are these elders? Um, earlier in this chapter, we saw uh, Paul say, do not rebuke an older man. And he uses the, he uses the same Greek term, presbyteros, um, the same Greek term, uh, older man, elder. But here, Paul says, let the elders who rule well. So these are, these are not necessarily older men as a category of age, but these are the leader, the spiritual leaders of the church. These are rule, these are leaders who rule well. In the New Testament, the, the ruling and leading responsibility was assumed of, of, these, of, of the church and of its leaders. Um, that's why back in 1 Timothy 3.1, Paul used the term overseer. These are overseers. They, they look out for, they, they oversee what's going on in the church. They are leading the church. And, and then Paul, in speaking to the, the elders from Ephesus, back in Acts chapter 20, he says this. He says, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. It was the gift of the Holy Spirit. It was the calling of the Holy Spirit that made those elders overseers, leaders, um, ruling well over the church. And then the writer of Hebrews writes this. He says to obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account before God. Elders are responsible before God for the way they keep watch over the church. They keep watch and they, they lead the church. They're responsible for all of that. They have a, a, a leading or a ruling responsibility and function in the local church. So remember, as we've, as we've seen before, that elders are the spiritual leaders of the church. We talked about that when we were looking at um, the, the des- descriptions and the characteristics of overseers and deacons, and we saw that, that the primary um, responsibility 
of elders or overseers, pastors in the church, was to provide spiritual leadership, spiritual care. And that the primary responsibility of the deacons was to provide physical care, to meet uh, physical needs. And that's an important distinction as we're looking here, because then he says, straight up, he says, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. The, the word for preaching here is literally, um, in, in, in other translations, um, in other parts of the Bible, the New Testament is the word. It's logos. That Greek word logos. They are devoted to the word. They are laboring in the word and teaching. They are giving their attention to the spiritual needs of the church. They're, they're involved in the ministry of the word. Back in Acts 6, when we saw the first deacons formed, what did the apostles say? They said, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And then he said that elders, um, or later on they, they said, we will devote ourselves to prayer. Um, it's not right that we should, excuse me, prior to that, they said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. So it was, a, it was a big deal that elders who labor in preaching and teaching, they're, they're actually singled out in this passage right here as ones who should be considered worthy of this double honor. This double honor. So I use the term aid, and of course you can see as, we, as you work through the outline, I tried to come up with a word that, that they all begin with A, and hopefully it'll be easier to remember that way. But don't get just, don't get distracted by the word aid, like it's first aid or, or something like that. What it means is, it's just another way of saying that elders are supposed to receive this double honor, especially those who are, of course, ruling well and those who are laboring and preaching and teaching. What is this honor? What kind of aid are they to be given? Well, this honor carries the idea of, of financial or monetary compensation. It was used that way throughout, and we saw that. When he said to honor widows, when he said honor widows who are truly widows, he was saying, look, these are, these are women who don't have any other means to take care of themselves. So show honor to them by, by supporting them, by giving financially and meeting their needs. And so in the same way, he's talking about the elders. He's saying they need to be compensated for their work that they do. Um, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, 14, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So this principle is made very clear in the next verse in our passage. Verse 18, he says, So the reason for showing double honor or considering double honor, giving double honor to the elders is that the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out its grain. From Deuteronomy chapter 25. And then the laborer deserves his wages. This, incidentally, that, that little phrase there, the laborer deserves his wages, comes straight out of Jesus' mouth. We find that in a couple places, but in one place in Luke chapter 10, we find that phrase. Jesus himself said, the laborer deserves his wages, which is why Paul can, can assert, hey, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should receive their living by the gospel. So, so here we have, just in, in, in these two verses, we have this, this um, command, really, by Paul saying, hey, 
provide aid to, your, to the elders of the church. You know, some elders of the church and some pastors, historically, have worked other jobs. And that's just, that's fine. Um, some of the elders may work other jobs. They, they may also share in the responsibility of preaching and teaching, providing spiritual leadership. But it is entirely appropriate for the church to provide financial support for elders who are primarily responsible for overseeing the ministry of the church, doing the regular preaching and teaching. So practically, it could look like a church with, you know, several elders, multiple elders. Some may receive income from other jobs. Some are maybe considered church staff um, and have the day-to-day responsibility of, of leading and, and managing the church and, and preaching that way and, and, and thus receive their income from the church. But Paul's saying, this is important. Why is it important? The gospel's at stake. The gospel's at stake. You know, if, if all of these other things here, he says about what we're supposed to believe about the gospel, that the gospel is, is a trustworthy saying that Christ and, and he came into the world to save sinners. Um, if the gospel is that, and part of the gospel is that, that God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, and that we need to be devoted to it, and the apostles understood that. This is a big deal. We need to commit our entire lives to this. But how could they make ends meet? How could they put food on the table? How could, you know, we, we go down the line and we realize that if a, if a pastor or an elder is, is pulled into another, another career, uh, I've seen this before many times. Uh, boy. I've seen a pastor who's so, so pulled into another career because of his small local church that wasn't able to sustain him that he doesn't even have a ministry anymore. That's just over the years, the gospel was lost. The gospel didn't, just didn't remain. It wasn't on his lips anymore. Uh, he, all he thought about was, how am I going to make money? How am I going to support my family? And, and because of that, the church has suffered. And I'm sure there are many examples that over the years um, we could pull from. And you, you may have seen some of those yourself. Well, it's not just that the elders are supposed to receive aid from the church, but what else are they supposed to, what, what else does the gospel inform us of? It, it informs us that um, of our accountability of elders, of our accountability of elders. Because look what he says. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses, as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. Um, the reality is that elders of the church are not infallible. Unfortunately, failings of elders and pastors are infamous. We've, we've all seen what can happen in the public eye when an elder or a pastor or preacher messes up. And the whole world knows what's happened, and what he's done. But it doesn't mean that elders should be unfairly judged, however. And that's what, that's what Paul's trying to counter here. See, too many churches, I think, sometimes can become overly zealous of their criticism. Overly zealous that they just want to um, judge them in the court of public opinion without a due process. So, so Paul gives Timothy here, a framework for practicing this kind of accountability. 
He says to do not admit a charge. That's a command. Don't do this. The exception being, are there two or three witnesses? Is there a, is there, is there a corroborating evidence? You know, Paul's point is that, that accusations against an elder need to be based in fact. They need to be based in fact. The principle should be um, applied to all cases of church discipline, you know, having evidence of two or three witnesses, but especially so, as stated here, um, against elders or in relation to elders or pastors so that, so that they, they, who are very public target, have some measure of protection just against slander and um, unsubstantiated charges. But he says that, you know, don't let them off the hook because those who persist in sin, in other words, those who are unrepentant, those who have been, um, that they have, they have been confronted privately, just as, as uh, Matthew 18, Jesus' words in Matthew 18 say, go to your brother privately, show him your sin, or take one or two or others with you, so you have two or three witnesses who can, who can address this and hold this person accountable. But if he's been warned, and he's been counseled, and he refuses to repent, then what does he say? Then publicly rebuke him. Because he is in a public office. It's a tragic, it's actually a tragic um, case when that happens. It's not, it's not something we look for. <laughs> it's not something that we are actively seeking. Well, let's see how many elders or how many pastors we can knock off. How much dirt we can dig up. Um, no one should rejoice in that process. It's unfortunate when it happens. But Paul was so committed to it, and, or he, he thought it was so important that he said this, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, he makes this very solemn charge. It's like, I'm saying this to you, Timothy. It's as if God is right here with me and Jesus is right here with me and all of the angels of heaven are right here witnessing this. So you better get this right. Don't mess this up. And he says this, Keep these rules without prejudging. In other words, don't make negative assumptions about a person. Oh, I heard Pastor so-and-so did this. Oh, I heard Elder such-and-such, you know, had this problem or this happened. Really? Well, let's all make a bunch of negative assumptions, all right? Let's just start the rumor mill, right? No, as Paul's saying, don't do anything without, or with, don't, don't prejudge an elder. And, and on the same time, at the same token, he says, do nothing from partiality. Doing nothing from partiality means don't give special treatment. Don't show favoritism. So both sides are very unhealthy. And Paul's trying to say, look, you need to balance the two. That's why, that's why you need to make sure that there's a process here by which you have to get evidence, that you have to, you have, to have an investigation to make sure that we are really literally holding the elders accountable and not just performing a witch hunt. When a, um, <clears throat> when a prominent pastor in Seattle began to come under fire earlier this year from all sorts of accusations, uh, many people watching from the outside said, oh, well, this must have been going on, or this must have been going on, or I bet you this is happening. A lot of negative assumptions were made right away. 
And in the same, in the same way, I guarantee you that many who were close to him were probably tempted, at least, to show him special treatment, to show favoritism. No, no, no. Not, not him. Not him. We could, couldn't be. Let's just ignore that. That's no big deal. Sweep it under the rug. It'll pass. This criticism happens. Well, neither of which were particularly helpful. And in the end, the church did help hold him accountable. And the result was his resignation. And the disillusion of the organization that he helped to build. You know, this level of accountability, especially in the public eye, is never pretty. It's, it's sometimes very uncomfortable. And it's always unfortunate. But it is the process that a church family has to go through to hold people accountable to the truth of the gospel. Hold people accountable to God's word and how it informs our accountability of elders. Well, he goes on and he says this, that um, the gospel also informs our appointment of elders in the church. How do we appoint elders? How do we ordain them? How do we set them in place into leadership? Well, he, he, he uses this term here in uh, verse 22, the laying on of hands. And that was just the, the expression of, of their, their, their moment when they ordained a man to be an elder and a leader in that way within the church. And we, we usually just refer to that simply as ordination. So we talk about someone being ordained into the ministry. That's what we're talking about, this laying on of hands and, and appointing that person into service. It's the church's way of, of really confirming that the Holy Spirit has called this person in, into ministry, into the, the life of ministry, and really confirming that call, right? So Paul told, though, Paul told Timothy, though, don't be hasty in this. Don't be too quick. You know, don't say, hey, that guy looks like a good elder. Let's appoint him. I remember sharing this story um, when we were going through uh, a while back. I'll repeat it again here. Um, church history shows us the, the, tells us the story of a, of a really great man. Uh, his name was Ambrose. And he was appointed as the bishop of the city of Milan. And everyone loved this man. But the reality was that he wasn't even a baptized member of the church. When they said, hey, let's, let's vote for that guy. Um, turned out okay. It turned out pretty good. I mean, he was a good guy. But you don't know when you're hasty in laying on hands, when you're hasty to appoint someone to this service, have you had time to assess his character? Have you had time to examine him? Have you, have you had time to assess whether or not he lives up to the characteristics of 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7? So, at the point that the elders of the church, in this case, how it's described here, it's the elders came and laid their hands on them with the church's um, affirmation to it. What they were publicly saying was, um, we, we publicly affirm his confession his conversion um, into, Christ, into Christ. We publicly affirm his calling into ministry, and we publicly affirm his character. That's what's going on there. They're saying, this is, this is man is a child of God. He's called to be an elder, and he is a man above reproach. We've tested his character. But what happens when you do that too quickly? What happens is you may end up taking part in his sins. Because when you affirm an elder, you're saying, hey, we, we got this 
we know all about this guy. Well, what happens when he turns out to have unrepentant sin in his life? What happens if he turns out to have some, some issue that, that's unconfessed? Well, then, then you're basically taking part in that sin with him, Paul says. He, Paul, wants, Paul wants to keep himself pure, keep Timothy pure. Don't let yourself get drawn into that. Don't, don't, don't mess up your reputation as a minister of the gospel. And don't, don't, repu- don't mess up the reputation of Christ and his gospel by approving of an elder who has unrepentant or unconfessed sin. Then Paul says something in verse 23 um, that um, in, my, in my translation in the English Standard Version puts it in parentheses, which I think is a probably good idea because it's all of a sudden, what's this talk about wine? What's this talk about drinking water? And he's talking about elders this whole time, isn't he? It's a little bit strange, I think. But I think as Paul was urging Timothy to remain pure in his appointments of elders, his thoughts shifted, and he started to think of Timothy's health problems. He he knew Timothy, and he knew he had problems with his stomach, and he knew he had these frequent ailments, these sicknesses. And so he's concerned about him, and he says, stop drinking water. And the ESV adds the word only. Don't drink only water, but use wine for the sake of your health. He wants Timothy to be pure in his body, and he wants him to be healthy so that he can carry on the gospel ministry as his, as his assistant, as his uh, appointed leader in that particular church. So I wanted to take just a little aside here, talk about this verse before we go back, because it, it always comes up in discussions about drinking alcohol. So two things that I, I think are important to remember. One is this, Paul's reference to wine is relative to his concern for Timothy's health. And that's his main concern. His main concern is Timothy's health. And so it shouldn't be as a New Testament mandate to drink white, uh, alcohol, wine, or beer, or whatever else, whether in public or private. It's not a mandate to drink. So we shouldn't go, well, Paul commanded Timothy to drink wine, and shouldn't that command then pass on to us, right? And we should take that command. We should be drinking wine too. Let's do this. Um, well, regardless of the documented health benefits of drinking alcohol, like me, you can add maybe one or two years to your life, and this stuff like that's been documented. Regardless of it, there's, there are plenty of documented risks to be considered as well, right? So consider that. Paul's main concern is for Timothy's health. And so that's where we should put the emphasis here. But also, Paul's command for Timothy to use an alcoholic drink should at least give us pause in making definitive statements about the sinfulness of all alcoholic consumption. Like, oh, it's always a sin in every case. Well, I, Paul, was, Paul was encouraging Timothy to sin, apparently. I mean, they knew what, they knew what alcohol would do. They knew that if you drank alcohol, you're going to get drunk. They knew that if you drank too much wine, you're going to get drunk, which is why Paul says to elders and deacons, they must not be addicted to much wine. They must not be drunkards. Because they knew exactly what would happen when you went to a party and you started drinking. So consider those things. Um, but consider that Paul's command to Timothy didn't necessarily say, okay, um, 
We doesn't mean that we should then turn around and say, well, it's all sinful all the time in every case. So I think there's a little bit of grace there and there's a little bit of openness there. And we need to use wisdom in that. Just I think as Paul did in the case with Timothy. Anyway, back to the main flow here. That Paul's thoughts have been on the aid and the accountability of and the appointment of elders. And, and so he turns back to this question when he's talking about appointment. He says, look, the sins of some people, they are conspicuous. They're obvious. You know, it's obvious. Some, some sins are obvious. And a lot of times we, um, we single those out, right? We single those obvious sins out and we say, well, that person's sinning, so write them off. But, but he also says that the sins of others appear later. There are some sins that are, that are hidden, that appear to be hidden, that appear to be, no one's ever going to find out about this sin. But Paul says, he, he assures us that they will be made known. They will appear later on. But he also says that good works are conspicuous or obvious. You know, a lot of times it's obvious when somebody's doing good things and somebody has good character and you say, well, that person's a really, they're always doing great things. They're always doing this. They're always doing that. But then there are also those, those good works that remain hidden. You know, Jesus said, don't let your, what, your left hand know what your right hand is doing or the other way around. Um, there, there are times when we just need to give anonymously and serve without getting any recognition for it. But Paul says that you can be sure of this, that those that are not cannot remain hidden. Maybe not now in this life they'll be all made known, all the good things that we've done or said or given, but they will be known in heaven. They will be known in eternity. But the point is that the church needs to be careful about this. They need to take time to observe. They need to take time to assess, to see if there are any um, hidden sins or hidden motives or um, even hidden good work that we need to be aware of. I'm reminded of the history of Israel. The history of Israel is dark at times. But just at the close of the, of, the, of the time of the judges, Samuel, who was the last judge, the, the nation of Israel, or the people of Israel, and it, its leaders came to Samuel and said, Hey, look, your sons aren't, aren't pulling their weight. They're not, they obviously are not going to follow you in the family business. They're no good. Um, we don't see any other good prophet coming up behind us. So you know what? We want a king. We want a king who will lead us. Just like all the other nations, they have a king. And God assured Samuel when they asked this, because Samuel was very upset about it. God said, no, they're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me as the king. They're rejecting me. So God went along with them. It appears that's how the story goes. He said, okay, I'll give them a king. And they anointed um, Saul. Saul was then anointed as king by Samuel. And Saul was this great man. They said, boy, he's, he's taller than everybody else. He looks like a great warrior. But, but not, it, wasn't, it wasn't long before we saw his character defects. A lot of character de- defects. His true character came shining through. He actually had no respect for the word of the Lord. He feared the praise of men rather than God. He was more concerned with public opinion than what God said in his word and his direct command. So God said to him through Samuel, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept 
what the Lord commanded you. What a sad time in the history of Israel. Here's, a, here's somebody who had all the right stuff, but didn't have the character to match. So as we are thinking about appointing elders in the church, it, character matters. Skills can be learned. Calling can be developed. In, once somebody is called, they can be developed and trained for the job. But character counts. Well, the final, final passage, uh, final section here, um, Paul changes his, his, his focus slightly, right? He's no longer talking just about the church and elders. He's actually talking about um, those who are what, what some translations call uh, bond servants or, or slaves. This is this Greek word doulos um, that in its most basic form was just talking about a slave and, and whatever, whatever relationship he had to a, a person he worked for, his master. But he, he says then, um, he kind of gives us a, a, a hint of how the gospel should then inform how we show appreciation of our elders, or of our leaders, just leaders in general, really. So how should the leaders be appreciated? Look, look at this, and he says they should be regarded as worthy of all honor. Worthy of all honor. Again, using that same, same idea that, hey, he, he deserves what he gets. Let's, let's show him that respect. Let's show him that honor. Let's show him that appreciation. Um, how should they, or why should they be honored? He says it, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. That it's, it's our, how we serve and respect the leaders that are appointed over us, no, no matter where we're at, whether we're, whether we're in the church or whether in the public uh, sector, whether it's a politician. Oh, you mean we have to show respect and honor to um, our elected servants? We can't just bash them on Facebook? How we show honor then affects our witness. How we show honor and how we show appreciation and how we serve them affects our witness. The, the, the idea here is that if you are um, showing dishonor and disrespect, God's name is going to be dragged through the mud because you're standing up saying, I'm a believer, and then I'm going to go over here and then I'm going to disrespect and show dishonor. And so what happens is that the name of God and the teaching, good doctrine, good truth, is then reviled. The word literally is blasphemed. God's name is blasphemed because of the way we treat people. Because our witness is lost. So what are we to do? So he goes on and says, you know, those who are, have believing masters, what about it? What if he's a Christian? What if he's a Christian? Does that change how we treat him? No, actually he should. He says we should treat them even better. We should treat Christian bosses even better. Whether, whether this person in authority is a, uh, whether, whether we're, we're all church members or deacons, elders, whatever it might be, pastors, whether they're paid or not paid, you know, we're all brothers in Christ. But that doesn't give us a right then to disrespect and dishonor, especially those who are appointed to have a different function within the life of the church or within society. So, one of my um, one of my most challenging experiences over the years of you know working outside of the church has been working for bosses who were who were unbelievers. Um, I remember a, a time back when when I think Olivia was she was a newborn. She was just a little baby newborn, 
And I had this job and I was working for a boss who, um, when I said, hey, I, I'm not available to work on Sundays, he had no re- appreciation for that, no respect for that at all. And he refused to give me hours in my job. Well, I didn't work there for very long, for much longer after that. Just couldn't, couldn't, couldn't sustain that. Um, it, was, it was difficult working for an unbeliever. I did the best I could. I offered to work any and every other time. Um, it just didn't work out, though. But later on, I, I, there have been times, there have been other times when I've worked for a believer. And one of my, one of my favorite per- persons to work for was a supervisor who was a fellow follower of Jesus. And, I, and there were many, many times when because of our, our connection, because we were brothers, and I knew we were brothers, that there were temptations to, you know, I can maybe slack off a little bit here. He's, he'll give me a break. He knows I'm a Christian. He knows I'm a, a, a brother in Christ. And he'll give me grace and he'll give me forgiveness. Yet, how could I claim to be transformed by the gospel and then live without integrity? So the gospel changes us and it challenges us. It tells us that to show our appreciation of our leaders by the honor and by the hard work, the service that we show them. So what's it going to look like then for you to help the church, to be part of the church, in gospel leading and following. That's the, that's the idea here today. So think about this. In order to provide aid and encouragement to your leaders, consider the way you encourage them, pray for them, support, and even submit to your leaders as they are appointed to lead. In order to provide, a gospel, to provide gospel accountability, though, and appointment, you also have to be devoted to this word. You have to be devoted to the word. We saw that we've, the whole service today is, has just been really full of praising God's word and, and holding it up, being ministers of the word, as elders are called to do, and uh, us as, as, as Christians, as fellow brothers and sisters, we have to be devoted to the word so that we know right behavior. We know what right belief is. And so then we can hold our elders, leaders, accountable to that. And we know if they're straying away from it or not. So will you consider then this morning just responding in a number of ways? Number one, you may want to make a commitment this morning. I pray that you will to pray regularly and support. I'm asking for prayer for me. This is an awkward message to give because it really feels like it's directed up here. Um, And I can only be faithful to God's word to tell you what it is, and then ask you to then faithfully respond to it. But will you pray for me regularly and keep supporting me and, and pray for and support our other elders as they're appointed in the church? Will you grow, you know, devote yourself to God's word and grow personally? Be in the word every day. Read the word. If you don't know how, speak to us. Come up this morning. I'll tell you how in about two minutes. Um, Connect with others through a missional community. That's why we gather in our homes in missional community, so that we can grow together and we are able to then communicate. What is God's word? What is he telling us? So be in a discipleship group. Um, uh, connect with, uh, with those leaders uh, or connect with other people that way. Connect with people in a missional community so that you'll know 
um, how to do faithful gospel leading and following. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this word this morning. I, I thank you that, um, that you've given us the, the word. It's, a, it's not an easy word. It's a challenging word in many ways. I pray that you will allow us to faithfully obey, empower us to obey. God, uh, this morning, I, I don't know exactly um, all of the, the responses that need to be made. God, you know. And um, I pray that uh, as, we, as we sing and respond to your word this morning, God, that uh, you will not allow us to go away ignoring your word to us. Let us not ignore it. Let us not uh, deny what you're saying to us. Let us be humble and obedient. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to have our time of response this morning. And um, as we do every Sunday, I want to give you an opportunity to, to come forward and respond in any way that, um, that God may be calling you to, to do. Um, so you may, you may want to come forward and say, hey, I want to, I want to get connected in a, in, a way, in a different way. I want to grow. I need help with that. Um, you may be saying, I need to make a commitment to Christ. Um, that, that there's never been a time in my life where I have, as, an, as a mature person, as an adult, said, you know what? I want to cast my lot with Jesus. I want to put in with Jesus. I want to, I want to make a stand. I want to say confession and repentance of my sins and my ways. And I, I just want to live for God. And you, you need to make that conscious decision. Maybe you need to make that decision. Maybe you need to say, look, I want to come forward and I want to be baptized into the church. I think that's important for me. I need to make that step of obedience. Uh, whatever it might be, I want to give you that opportunity. So would you stand with me and we'll sing along with the recording and you respond and come forward as God leads you.
and let the music fade there. And um, we're gonna close out our time of, of worship this morning. But before we do, I want to invite Matt to come up. Um, and you all know Matt, and he's um, my brother. Been faithful to preach, preach with us, and and um, they are Matt and Alicia are starting up a brand new missional community this afternoon at one thirty. So I wanted to bring him up, and I wanted to just pray with him, and and invite you to pray with me silently as I pray for him. Um, this is really cool because you have people from your neighborhood that are, okay. yep, invited. they've been they're invited, and they've been. They've been building relationships with them over the last uh, few months since they've been in that community. And then we have a few other families. Um, some of our, you know, River Church family, at least one family not here this morning, is going to be there with them this afternoon. They're bringing a bunch of uh, friends as well. So this is, I mean, this is just a joy to see this happening. And so we want to pray for them, be led by the Holy Spirit, and that, that God will just bring many to uh, come to know him through your missional community. Let me pray. Um, Heavenly Father, I thank you for Matt. I thank you for his faithfulness to you. I thank you for Alicia and all the hard work that she does, raising the little ones and um, running the home. And God, um, I just pray that you will bless them today as they begin their first uh, week as a, a missional community officially. And I pray, God, that you will bring so many from their neighborhood to come to that, that they will build relationships with them. And um, that they will come to know Jesus. They will be transformed by the good news of Jesus. And God, I, I know there, there will be challenges and difficulties, so encourage them, strengthen them, um, fill them with your Holy Spirit so that they can go forward and uh, in, encourage, being encouraged, knowing that you are with them wherever they go. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Um, and so be sure to Say an encouraging word to Matt. Thank you, Dr. Bradley, for coming this morning and blessing us with your testimony and your word from the Lord. And um, thank you. And with that prayer, I think that we'll just be dismissed. Thank you. God bless.